Hey there, everybody. Hope you're doing well today. It is Wednesday, the 18th of May in 2016. Thank you so much for joining me. My name is Luke Thomas, and this is the Promotional Malpractice Live Chat. Um, lot to get to today. Results from UFC 198. Of course, we have the UFC 199 shakeup. Just as we go live, it was announced on Twitter that uh, UFC President Dana White is going to be speaking on ESPN. Pull this up a little bit what I'm assuming is going to be the replacement for Chris Weidman being out against Luke Rockhold. So we'll react to that live um, as that happens. But thank you so much for joining me. Really appreciate it. We'll go for about the next 90 minutes or so. And um, we will react to this news. We'll talk about whatever you want to talk about. Best place to ask your questions, of course, is on MMAfighting.com in the comments section. If you can do that there, that'd be great. Comments that turn green get priority, but not exclusivity. I will try to drop to the bottom today to ask questions that normally I don't get to because of the chronological ordering of things. Um, so I appreciate everyone's participation. Uh, give it a thumbs up if you can. That'd be great. And uh, let's get this started again. As soon as we get some reaction and some news from old um, Dana White on this, Oh, here we go. It's live. Bisping to face Rockhold. Thank you to my boss. Here we go. All right. Here we go. Jacare Souza was the number one choice, according to Dana White, but he isn't able to compete due to an injury. Bisping gets the title shot. So there we are. Michael Bisping, forever the bridesmaid and not the bride. He is finally going to get his... Oh, man, let me fix this thing. God damn it. Hang on. There we go. All right. Sorry about that. Had to fix this. And now I got to fix this. Yeah, I'm really well prepared, as you can see. All right, here we are. Michael Bisping is going to get the title shot. So it's Rockhold versus Bisping 2. They fought last time in Australia. Um, Bisping was finished with a one-armed guillotine from Mount, although it's not quite one-armed because you need the other arm to post to make the one-arm work. But... You get the idea. He certainly lost via stoppage. Uh, wasn't exactly close, but it was a easy fight to sell because the two had a uh, back and forth. It's been always repeated throughout uh, history that Bisping started that rivalry on a UFC Tonight show when he called himself the unofficial Strike Force champion after sparring with Luke Rockhold. That is not true. That actually happened on MMA Uncensored Live. I remember what happened because after the commercial break, Michael Bisping looked at me and goes, I don't know if I should have said that. But uh, there you go. Uh, Michael Bisping will get the title shot, I guess, after beating Anderson Silva. Now, here's the interesting part. If you follow Michael Bisping on uh, Instagram, I think even Twitter, because I think his Instagram photos go on Twitter, um, he's been not training. He's been on a movie set. Um, I'm not sure which movie it is. I think I want to say Jason Statham is in it, but you get the idea. Um so there you go. Two and a half weeks away, Michael Bisping's going to fight Luke Rockhold. What has he got to lose? I mean, well, everything, I suppose. But at least he got the title shot. He beat Anderson Silva. It's been a strong year for Michael Bisping. He's shooting a movie. Um, he was the winner of the Ultimate Fighter 3, which was... When was the Ultimate Fighter 3? Let's see. The Ultimate Fighter 3. April of 2006. Whoa. April to June of 2006. Wow. Ten years after winning the Ultimate Fighter, Michael Bisping is going to fight for a title. I don't necessarily like his chances. Rockhold already beat him once. He's had a full camp. Um, even with a full camp, I don't know what Bisping could necessarily do. However, stranger things have happened in mixed martial arts, and it's a bit of a celebration tour of all things Michael Bisping. So 
So there you go. There's your UFC 199 main event. Rockhold versus Bisping 2. I think a lot of folks were saying, why didn't you all Romero get it? Wouldn't have been opposed to that necessarily, but it just seems like he wasn't ever really part of the discussion. Um, I think, obviously, the more deserving candidate, even with that Romero loss, because I thought that loss was super controversial, uh, was Jacare, but Jacare got injured beating Vitor Belfort, or at least had an injury before. Anyway, couldn't pass a medical clearance, and if you can't do that, well, what can you do? Uh, by the way, I'm drinking water today, less diet soda, in my Stella Artois glass. There was a bar that went out of business down the street, and uh, um, they were selling all their things. And they sold a six-pack of Stella Artois glasses. I'm a redneck, so I bought them. It's like three bucks or something. All right. Um, I'll take any questions related to this on Twitter if you have them, at SBN Luke Thomas. Um, so this is, oh, Romero is suspended until July. There you go. Forgot about that because I forgot the suspension was still in effect. Fair enough. There you go. So he wasn't eligible anyway. So that left two choices in Rockhold and, um, excuse me, in Bisping and Jacare, and then Jacare's injured, so it sort of narrows it down. All right, there we are. Someone says, it's a chalice and not a glass, according to Stella. Well, I don't drink Stella in it, so, you know, get a glass. All right, let's get to these questions, shall we? All right, first one's up. Oh, Jesus, this is long. But it has four wrecks. Oh, it's from uh, last week's MMA beat debate. Debate. <laughs> There's no debate about it. All right, here we go. Uh, FS1 viewership versus pay-per-view viewership. I watched the MMA beat last week, and there was a spirited discussion about comparing the number of people who watch FS1 prelims versus a pay-per-view card. I didn't agree with Ariel's idea at all that you could compare Nielsen ratings to pay-per-view buys. Well, you can. It's just very difficult because you're working with a, a large set of unknowns. And one of the things I didn't get to say on the MMA beat that I think is really relevant to the discussion is that when you put the pay-per-view behind a paywall, I mean, that's what it is. It's pay-per-view. Um, the amount of pirating goes up. Now, there's pirating of cable TV as well. We shouldn't discount that. But the amount of pirating of cable TV for non-marquee attractions, which is what typically goes on the FS1 prelims, even at that headlining role, the, the 9.30 uh, p.m. fight that goes into the 10 o'clock slot, um, there is some theft of that, uh, but the amount of theft relative to what's behind the pay-per-view, I, I suspect, is dramatically less. So in terms of the aggregate numbers of people watching, that's a hard thing to quantify. Um, and again, I admit some of the evidence is anecdotal, but it's more than just anecdotal evidence. There's just plenty of reason to believe that the amount of people watching on the main card is substantially greater than the FS1 prelims. Again, depending on the headliner, but I think in, even in most cases, it's, it's greater. That's where all the marquee attraction is. That's where all the promotion has gone behind. FS1 will put a little bit of promotion behind those prelims, but not a significant amount, um, not on times where they have a lot of opportunity necessarily to sell it. So to me, that's where all the emphasis goes. That's where all the viewers go. That's where all the activities around. I, I don't know how you could reasonably claim that FS1 has more, but here you go. You mentioned there was an old UFC study saying there was a viewership for a pay-per-view that was 10 per, per buy, which I, even on that show I mentioned was high, but just to give you a sense that it was it's more than one-to-one. -one. This was actually reported from Dave Meltzer, and I posted the link at the bottom. The biggest takeaway was the following, quote, the research showed that it varies based on the event, which makes sense. 
The stronger the event, the higher the average. For UFC, a live show on Spike, the number is closer to 1.5 per household. Uh, the feeling is there is about 200,000 UFC hardcore pay-per-view fans who will watch the show. The rest are going to buy if friends want them to buy, which is why the numbers vary so much. Most of the audience variants are people who are not MMA fans. From personal experience of watching 90% of UFC's pay-per-views live since early 2006, I completely agree with that statement. Let me ask the following litmus test. JDS versus Kane on Fox did an average of 5.7 million viewers, and the ratings peaked in the United States at around 8.8 million viewers. Does anyone with half a brain actually think that that more people decided, excuse me, does anyone with half a brain actually think that more people watched that than the 4.4 million pay-per-view buys for Mayweather Pacquiao? Certainly not. In closing, someone posted the following chart on Reddit when this discussion came up for boxing pay-per-views. The chart isn't verified, but the general idea I agree with. So for 200 to 400,000 pay-per-view eyes, they estimate it's about 1.5 views per pay-per-view sale. From 400 to 500,000, it's about two. And from 500,000 to 600,000, it's about three views per pay-per-view sales. One million buys was closer to seven per pay-per-view sale, uh, which I completely agree with. The, the problem with making the argument that I was making was, again, there's a number of just unknowns. How many people are watching in bars? Uh, when do sports bars do their biggest business? Some are saying, well, sports bars do their biggest business between 8 and 10. That might be the case for an NBA game, but that's even that's not really true if it's a West Coast game. Those West Coast games get started later. And moreover, on Fight Night, went at, it, I had a buddy who ran a sports bar. It's not 8 to 10. It's closer to about 11.30. 11.30 is when, they really, it's when the peak business. After that, it kind of tends to drop um, a little bit. 11.30 to midnight, really, right? which makes sense, right? Right around main, main event time. That's when it's filled up the most. So the most people are there. That's when the most people are watching. <clears throat> and moreover, that's just for bars. Like, so you, I think most people would agree the main event is going to be more watched than the FS1 prelim main event. Like, I, even Ariel didn't disagree with that necessarily. So, so that's I don't want to put words in his mouth or distort his argument. Um, but let's say which one has more: the first or second final pay per view or the, the FS1 prelim? I would still say the pay per view. Right, people aren't buying the pay per view typically for UFC fans and coming to it late. Once they once they watch, they're switching automatically. That's when the clustering begins. That that clustering effect is kind of hard to quantify. Um, and again, there's going to be a degree to which pirating comes into effect, and that also is hard to quantify. But just speaking realistically, where is all the energy around? What is all the media attention focused on? When does some of the media show up? Some don't show up till late um, main card um, or main card at all. Um, that's just when that's when all the eyeballs are there. When do the fans show up? Uh, same kind of thing. It's it's all centered on that main card attraction. It's the prelims on FS1. There is some degree of viewership, but you know, um, there's, I think there's also a question of the meaningfulness of that viewership. Someone was asking, I think, about this later. I was looking over some of the questions. They're like, you know, the Bellator ratings and the FS1 ratings were not dissimilar, but there's a lot more attention around. Um, UFC. Well, there's a lot of reasons for that. One, it's the UFC, but more than that. Um, Spike has its own audience and it has MMA fans watching and there is some overlap in those groups so there's the Venn diagram, it's MMA fans Spike audience and they overlap a little bit but I think there's if you see the numbers on Spike being you know, relatively similar or even higher understand they reach a different audience where those FS1 numbers who is FS1's audience outside of UFC events or, or sporting events generally, it's really low it's really low, like Colin Coward's on right now He's doing, what, 60,000 people? I mean, two of my live chats, sometimes one of my live chats will beat that, right? So not a lot of people. All right. 
Boxing, MMA, promotion, Floyd, Connor Jones, the big question. What do you make of John Jones perhaps joining the money team? Considering the recent rumors regarding Connor and Floyd and Floyd's past declarations that he would like to become involved in MMA management and promotion, surely something is afoot. The heck is going on, Luke? Do you think some big news is coming soon involving Floyd Jones and maybe even Connor too? I don't understand. I, I, I've seen that um, Don and Floyd talked. Um, we've talked about the money team before. This is really a outfit that promotes Mayweather's brand more than anything else. They have promoted some boxing events, including some PBC ones. They did the one here in D.C. with uh, Thea Fain and Broner. Um, but if you look at the stable of Floyd's fighters, not all of them, virtually hardly any of them, are any good. Um, I'm not saying him getting to MMA would be bad, but under what conditions would he do that? Um, you know, what can Floyd reasonably do as a promoter that John isn't really getting? Um, maybe some. I'm, I'm not saying there's nothing, but I'd be curious to see what it is. You know, he's already got a manager um, in Malkikawa, who he's been with for a very long time, and I don't know. I, I have as many questions about you about this as you do. I don't. I don't pretend in this particular circumstance at all to have all, if any, of the answers. I think it's very much uh, an open question. But I also think that whenever Floyd talks and whatever he says, there is always going to be this discussion of um, to what extent is he just promoting himself? And I think there's a lot of that. You know, uh, I don't think that's. All of it. Certainly, don't think he's having these discussions in private for no particular reason. But, but there you go. Look, I'm not against Floyd getting into the MMA space. I find him no less of a dirtbag than anyone else in the sport. Uh, sure, he has a lot of power. He has a lot of sway. But you know, you're asking me, what is he going to do without him declaring anything and without anyone really having any sources on the Mayweather side of things? Um, it's really not clear to me. If we, if we take what he's done in boxing as an example. He's not going to promote John in terms of his own fights. That's not going to work. You'll see he's not going to go co-promote. I mean, that'd be nice if they did, but they're not going to. And because um, John doesn't have the leverage to make them. And uh, I mean, I guess there's other ways he, they could be promoted. Certainly the alliance of the two would be interesting, but all I'm saying is keep an open mind. The questions are worth asking, but right now we're working with a massively incomplete amount of information. All right. Five top dumbest fight plans and strategies and title fights in recent UFC history as applied by the champ. Um, well, I know of one right off the top of my head. Uh, who are the three top most intelligent fighters in each weight class? You want me to name all those people? UFC sale. Luke, what are, you, what are your up-to-date thoughts and understandings of the UFC for sale story? I actually talked with a buddy of mine who works on Wall Street, and he was asking the same very thing. We don't have any additional information at this point. There's nothing really new to add to it. Um, again, uh, this is a very, very – I don't have a lot of Goldman Sachs connections. I don't have a lot of Deutsche Bank or really anybody on Wall Street who might know. In fact, my buddy on Wall Street was asking me, and I, I don't know what to tell you. So we'll just, this, the, whatever winds up happening – you just have to wait and see what it is before you can really declare what it's going to be. Um, it's not a really known... This is a lot of uncharted territory. How much are they going to sell for? How much money? What kind of controlling interests are the new owners going to have? Um, what do they want with the product? 
obviously they're going to want more Chinese and, and East Asian involvement, which um, could be great. But in what what capacity? We'll have to wait and see. Uh, UFC 199 replacement. If you could decide, now we know it's Bisping. Who would you choose, Bisping, Jacare, Musasi, or Hall? I would go with, with Jacare. Again, I, I think it's worth, by the way, just going through the exercise here of looking at his resume because people don't realize this. He hadn't lost, if you count, if you don't count the Romero loss, he he hadn't lost since losing to Rockhold the first time. So he loses to Rockhold in September of 2011, which he lost. I mean, it was close, but he lost. He then goes on to beat Bristol Marunde. Then Derek Brunson, these were both in strike force. Then Ed Herman in strike force. He finishes all three. He KOs Brunson in the first round. He submitted uh, Marunde in the third. He submitted Herman in the first. Then he submits Chris Camozzi in the first. Then he stops Yushin Okami in the first. Then he decisions Francois Carmont. Then he submits Gugard Musasi. Then he submits again Chris Camozzi. I thought he beat Yoel Romero, but he came up on the wrong end of a decision. And then he beats Vitor Belfort. Now, provided he was not in, injured, that's a super strong resume right there. Super strong resume. And you got that sort of bookend history going on where, um, you know, the last person to... I would say the case that Rockhold beat Jacare is much stronger than the case that Romero did. Um, there's a lot going for him there. It's an interesting matchup. He's getting older too. He's long of the tooth, still pretty athletic, but, you know, time is, is ticking away. But you got to feel good for Michael Bisping. You got to feel good for him. Um, and maybe we can get him on today's show. Let's see. Let me ask my producer. On today's show. There we go. All right. Someone says, Hall is coming off of a loss to Whitaker. That's true. How could he even be in the discussion? Musasi is on a one-fight win streak. Sure. Whitaker, Bisping, and Souza are the three guys in the top ten who are the most deserving of a title shot. I think Bisping should get it simply because of how many times he lost out on title shots to fighters who are known to have PEDs. I'd be okay with that. I'd also say that I have a high opinion of uh, Whitaker. He's been making steady, incredible improvement, but um, I still feel like he's in the skill-building phase and not in the elite contender phase. Um, and I would like to see him work on his development just a little bit more before we really throw him to the upper end of the division. Uh, I think if given the proper time, he can do a lot up there. This is not a this is not a statement of saying he can't do it. This just means there might be certain conditions where he can do that a lot better than the current ones. Um, okay. Verdum's weight gain. Look, one thing I noticed, uh, actually this is a good question. One thing I noticed was the Verdum, was that Verdum looked a little less mobile and physically he looked more out of shape on Saturday night. He was 232 for the Travis Brown fight and the Mark Hunt fight. He weighed in at 236 against Kane, and he was 240 against Miocic. The weight he put on clearly was not muscle. I was just surprised how he looked given the amount of time to prepare and how big the fight was. Verdun was the guy who got to Mexico months in advance to prepare for Kane, and he didn't look as prepared last Saturday. I don't think that's a bad question at all, but to me, I don't think that's why he lost. Now, it may not have helped him, certainly, um, especially if the fight had gone longer. We would have been able to ascertain whether or not it had any real um, noticeable impact on his cardio. But if you watch the Monday Morning Analyst, I think um, – I wish I could do the episode over because I had some insights that I want to share after I'd already recorded it. But but basically, it's this. 
um, people were saying, oh, how could you say this? You know, Verdum's been blitzing for all his career. It's true he likes to phase shift, you know, punch with one side, then step forward and punch with the other side a little bit. But it's not true that he would like to run after a guy in the same kind of way. Usually he would push a guy back when they were just defending, which is what I mentioned on the podcast, either to lock up uh, the clinch and fire him up, to back him up with strikes as they defend. Um, and it usually started in a more central position into the fence line or at least behind the concentric black taped uh, octagon spaces inside the larger octagon. Um, it never really was a case where he got Miocic back up to the fence, and so here's Verdun and here's Miocic. Verdun should have gone this way, waited, and then pushed. Instead, he kind of followed him, and as the course of following him, that's when he got tagged again. He got tagged. Remember, he fell right against the fence line. He didn't fall with his hips facing the fence. He actually fell with his hips kind of like like per perpendicular to them, uh, or even I guess even parallel, depending on what you're, how you want to define it. But like hip, fence line. Here's the fence, and here's his hips. So I guess perpendicular. Um, that should tell you that there was a there was a, a little bit of a desperation in that. Now, what was the desperation coming from? Was it momentarily? Maybe. Um, I don't know. But the, the key idea is this, was that in all the other examples of him launching these forward blitzes, um, at least in the Miocic fight, there were five of them. The fifth one is the one that he got clipped on and closed the show. The fourth one he got hit on. But here's what I mean. In the first three, all Miocic did was uh, cover up and back up. He would block a shot. He'd have a hand up. He'd have another hand out. He would either block a punch, block a punch, and put a hand on the shoulder to keep Verdum away, block a punch, and circle out, not simply straight back, but circle out. There was one time he kind of went straight back and got tagged and then circled out after that. But the point being is this. Miocic never really let him get anywhere with it. Miocic used strong defense to not take a lot of punishment. He used great footwork and great angles to stay away from the spacing that Verdun was trying to collapse and the angles that Verdun was looking for. And he never really just shelled. He never just covered up like this. He kind of waited with his eyes open but blocking, blocking to see what he needed to do to make the kind of lateral movements he needed to make. He did that three times where Verdun, again, he had one punch that snuck through, I think, on the second or third blitz, but it wasn't a lot. And then the fourth one, that's when Miocic retaliated. So he circled, 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 blocked, and then threw the right hand. And then through the right hand, so he throws the right, bang, and then pulls off of that right, okay? But that's when he was kind of against the fence line. Rather than Verdum coming out and blocking him, Verdum continued to chase and got clipped with another right. In many of the other circumstances when Verdum did that, guys weren't firing back. When he got clipped on that fourth blitz with that right hand, that I don't know if it rocked him, but it certainly knocked his feet off balance a little bit. That was that should have been a cue to him to not keep doing that, to reset, create a better position, and then if you want to keep blitzing, fine. Plus, you had him dead to rights if you wanted to properly cage cut, and he didn't. So it was just a lot of noticeable, identifiable, strategic mistakes. That's what it was to me. He was chasing an opponent. He was chasing an opponent who was never letting him get close enough. He was chasing an opponent who was using proper footwork to create space. He was chasing an opponent who had really great defense. He didn't just shell up. He did block. He did do defensive maneuvers, but defensive maneuvers that allowed him to think the whole time. There's this amazing video by Travis Stevens. I don't know if you guys know who Travis Stevens is. Boy, I have a lot of respect for Travis Stevens. Travis Stevens is a U.S. Olympic judoka. 
Um, he was a member of, the, I think, the 2008 and 2012 squads. I think he's probably going to make the 2016 squad. He got silver at the Pan Am Games this year. He's been, he's medaled there. Let me look up his resume. I know he's I know he uh, medaled previously. Let me look up his old donk resume. Travis Stevens is a very accomplished guy. So Travis Stevens, yeah, 2009 he won the Pan Am Games. Uh, he won the Pan American Games in 2015 as well. Um, I guess in the Pan Am Championships, he got silver this year at 81 kilos. So he's a black belt in judo and an Olympic level judoka, number one. Number two, um, he's a black belt in pure jiu-jitsu under Henzo Gracie or John Danaher. I'm not sure exactly who gave him his black belt under that team, basically. He has this video that he put out maybe a couple of years ago where he talks about what mental toughness is. And what mental toughness is, he would be like, you know, we go through a two or three hour workout and I would make it to the end of the workout and I'd be like, oh, I'm so mentally tough because I can make it to the end of these long, grueling workouts. And what he said was like, basically anybody can do that, right? You can just sort of coast through a workout if you have to and you can reach the finish line. Um, you might be exhausted and beat up and tired, but you can just kind of like go on autopilot and then just go. And he realized after the 2008 games that, uh, I'm not sure exactly what incident happened at those games, but his point was as follows. And this relates back to Verduma a little bit. Um, that... Real mental toughness in the physical competitive sense is when even under duress or fatigue or challenge, um, your brain always continues to think. You're always thinking. You're not going on autopilot. You'll notice a lot of times you might notice if you run a run and you're tired or you're lifting weights you're on that last rep, you kind of just mentally shut off just to you know, hit that last push press or bench press or the last quarter mile or you know whatever. It is. You kind of just shut off. Or if you have to run up a big hill, you just turn your mind off. You just try to get up as fast as you can. And he was saying that's really the wrong way to do it. The right way to do it is to constantly be thinking, constantly aware. Stipe Miocic was always putting himself in a position where he was never getting physically overwhelmed with the spacing or the distancing. He was always resetting the position in a way that was the best for him. He was never getting trapped against the fence. At one time where he came close... Verdun made the strategic error, but he did all the right things. He was circling back, and he would have come back around. Remember, he hit him with the right hook. On the fourth blitz, when he first hit him with the right hook, what did he do? He angled off to the right. He didn't need to angle off on the fifth one because Verdun entered the land of wind and ghosts, but you get the idea. He was always thinking. He was always putting himself in a position to make great choices. That's why he won that fight. So to your point, did Verdun look a little mm, not the best I've ever seen him? Sure. Uh, no doubt about it. And maybe that had an effect. Maybe that says something about his camp that he didn't do the right kind of strength and conditioning. Uh, maybe that, maybe all of that had an impact. But certainly what we can say is strategically he made bad choices um, in the moment of that fight adjusting to what C.V. Miocic was doing. He just was not accustomed to a striker who wouldn't just cover up and wouldn't – he just was never playing for Doom's game with that. And I think Verdun was like, I got to find a way to make him play this game. And as he got increasingly desperate on that fifth and final blitz, after eating a right hook on that fourth blitz, um, he closed the show. But just sort of tells you, it's like, v Miocic tactically did have made all the right decisions, but he was able to make those decisions, one, because he has those abilities, but two, he's able to bring those abilities to life because he's not doing this. He's doing this. Right? Hand up here. He's always paying attention. He's always thinking. 
whatever the duress is, he's got some 250-pound Brazilian monster running at him. He's still making smart decisions. That, to me, is why he's the champion today. And let me go back and, and address something that I mentioned this on the podcast as well, and I'll move on to some other questions. But folks were asking me, you know, um, like getting a prediction wrong or right, I don't feel like it's the end of the world. But, for example, I picked LaWall. I thought LaWall, at worst, got a draw in that fight with Davis. But it more or less happened how I thought it was going to happen. The takedown was not a big portion of that fight at all. It didn't happen until the third round until LaWall got clipped. Um and he was able to avoid the submission and stand back up. The, the takedown, the wrestling was not a big issue. It was the striking that won. And I thought LaWall did better body work in the first and second round. Okay, we can reasonably disagree, but that's what I thought. That's basically what happened. Like, it's not too far from what I thought was going to happen, right? What, you get him wrong, you get him right, but that's whatever. What I had thought that Verdun was going to do was stay out of trouble against better strikers more recently. Now, not early in his career, either against Antonio Silva and certainly not against Junior Dos Santos, but more recently... He would find ways to mix it up a little bit, and certainly he did against Cain Velasquez, but he would generally find a way to stay out of a big punch. He would generally find a way to stay out of what the other person does really well uh, when they can really bring their strengths to bear, and he just completely abandoned that here. That I was not expecting. That I just got I, – I didn't see that coming, um, and he paid for it dearly. All right, UFC fantasy matchups. I will do this as fast as possible. Miocic versus Rumble. Miocic, Miocic can take a shot too. Gustafson Rockhold. Um, I'll say Gustafson. Shogun versus Belfort. Shogun. Hall versus Wonderboy. Uh, Wonderboy. Nick Diaz versus Musasi. Musasi. Lawler versus RDA. Lawler's too big. Edgar versus Dillashaw. Probably Edgar. Edgar versus Cruz. I don't know. I want to see that one. Mighty Mouse versus Lineker. At uh, Mighty Mouse versus Lineker. Mighty Mouse. CM Punk versus me. Yeah, no one wants to see me fight CM Punk. I can assure you. Europa League final. Today is the Europa League final between Sevilla and Liverpool. Are you going to watch it? No. And if so, who you got? Um, Torn. I always root for La Liga teams, but uh, I like uh, what old Klopp has done for Liverpool. So, so we'll see. Fighter walk in safety and security. Even though Matt Brown had angered the home crowd at the weigh-ins, there are no excuses for attacks on his person. Period. What steps do you feel the UFC should take now to ensure fighter safety as they make their way to the cage? I'm not sure what they can do except to make the expanse of their walkway wider because they're not going to use a ramp. If you have a ramp, you'll notice that there's not just a space between the person and their... Um, the ramp, depending on how the ramp looks, there's actually lighting along the ramp. So there's the ramp, which is elevated, plus lighting along the way. There might even be pyrotechnics. So the people are kind of separated from that. Now, as I get to the end of the ramp, it kind of um, the, the the seating gets a little bit closer. But the UFC is not going to do that. So what are they going to do? I, I guess unless they widen the walkway, I don't know. I mean, they're coming out with, you know, I don't know if they're armed, but they're coming out with security to escort them there. Um but, you know, you think of uh, who was the female tennis player who got stabbed on the court? Um, not Steffi Graf. It was, um, was it Monica Sellis? Who was it? Stabbed. Yeah, Monica Sellis. She was stabbed about, what, 23 years ago. You know, you just wonder what's, I mean, I guess if their security at the gate is tight as they come into the facility, you wouldn't have to worry about this, but imagine someone being, you can imagine it's happened before. Someone has snuck through a knife and they have a seat right on there. They could 
you know, they could do it. Um, the only way I think to separate that would be just to widen the path of the walkway. And, and I don't know how feasible that is from a seating arrangement venue to venue. I don't, it may not be all that possible. Some of those, I mean, those entrances are designed for different purposes in mind and it's tough. It's a tough call. Plus, if you've never been to one of these events, what winds up happening is if you sit in a section, let's say your section is here and the walkway is here, as the fighters come out or in, depending if it's the same one or if it's a fight night card, people just get up off their seats and they all kind of coalesce here. And so it just gets overcrowded too. It's it's It can be a mess. Is Overeem essentially a lock? for the next heavyweight title shot. Seems that way. I'm not sure who else they really put in there. I mean, let's look at the guys who are available, right? It's 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 not a lot of dudes, man. It's and even if there was more choices, I don't know how many of them are better than him. I mean, he seems to be the here the train coming. All right, so you've got Verdum calling for an immediate rematch. I mean, I don't yeah, I don't think I, it's not how this business works, unfortunately. Then you got Cain Velasquez. He's tied up with Travis Stevens. So are they really going to wait that long? I don't think so. Then you got Overeem. Dos Santos just won, but he this is his first one winning. He already lost to Overeem, plus he had surgery. You got Ben Rothwell, who just lost. Arlovsky, who just lost. Travis Brown's tied up. Then you got Mark Hunt. You could do that, I suppose, but I don't know. Josh Barnett, you're not going to do. Roy Nelson, you're not going to do. Then Lewis, Mir, Struve, Megamadov, and Olenek. It's your best choice, right? By just simply by a process of elimination, that's your best choice. Dana White says he doesn't know if Ronda Rousey will be ready for UFC 205. The only thing the least bit surprising about this is that Uncle Fester, that's what this guy says, actually said it out loud. My prediction that she will never fight again, which I made an hour after her last fight, is still very much alive. In Budo, we trust. Uh, I suspect you will see her again. Here's the issue. I think it is highly contingent upon what happens in that fight, whether or not there is a longer career after that. So, for example, let's say she fights Tate upon her return. I don't know that she will, but let's just sort of say that. And let's say she loses to Tate. Let's say she loses to Tate via stoppage. I recognize that this is not necessarily the likeliest outcome, but just work with me here. If she lost twice in a row via stoppage and to her number one nemesis, who she'd already beaten twice, I wonder if she just might call it quits after that. You know, this she seems to have she seems to have taken this loss <laughs> uniquely hard, um, which is understandable. I, I I don't I don't make fun of her for it in any capacity whatsoever, but it has certainly taken a toll on her. And I think the demands of the job generally have taken a toll on her. For her to given all that all the other options that she has, and who knows how long those will last if she doesn't fight, but for now it probably seems like they're gonna be here a while. Does she really want to keep doing this? Does, does she really have it in her? I mean, this rebound fight for her is big. If it was me, I'd make it a tune-up fight, but it's not me. So, uh, Okay, Chael starting submission underground promotion. Uh, I wrote the article breaking this. I'm not sure it got linked around that much, but neither here nor there. So I spoke to Chael about this, um, but we had like a 30-minute conversation. In, in any event, okay. What are your thoughts, hopes, and fears regarding this venture? I have no fears. Uh, it's not my money. Thoughts? Um, good to see someone else trying to do professional grappling. As I noted in the article, it's very, very difficult to make any money in this. 
You know, everyone's like, well, the IBJJF should pay people more. IBJJF stays in business because they charge people. I mean, I'm not saying they couldn't pay people more, but um, there, there's a couple of nuggets in that article that I really wanted people to get across. Number one, um, Chael got the approval of Eddie Bravo to use EBI rules. Now, the slight twist on it is that the first period for the grappling in Submission Underground is only going to be eight minutes. That's not what Eddie Bravo does, but okay, they're going to use eight minutes. After that, it becomes basically the same thing. Um, but what Chael told me, and I put in that article, was Chael and Eddie want the EBI rules to become the grappling version of the unified rules. That's the first thing. But the, the second thing he said that I think is really kind of important here, and it's a point I think I've made on this chat a, a few times as well, MMA is interesting in that it's a small population of guys trying to do it, at least worldwide or you know relative to something else, and it can have, at times, a very large audience. Grappling is precisely the opposite. The number of grapplers anywhere is, you know, orders of magnitude bigger than the number of fighters. The problem is that no one really wants to watch it. For now, anyway, we'll see what these guys can do. Um, but he made the point in the article that, like, when he would go to these MMA gyms, it'd be five, six, seven, eight, nine guys. And there's some gyms that are bigger than that, of course. But you know, there's not a lot, of, not a lot of fighters, and not a lot of gyms. You know. The Tuesday night class last night at my gym, there must have been 50 people there. Guys, girls, heavyweights, middleweights, flyweights, you get the whole thing. You can get a lot of looks um, when you're training. You can do a gi, you can do a no gi. There's, the number of grapplers is huge. It's huge, especially relative to MMA fights. It's just that, do people really want to watch this who aren't participants? I feel like it's powerlifting. You know? I've been getting into powerlifting recently, and it's the same kind of thing. It's like... It's these guys who do it on their own time. They show up to weekend meets. They compete. Their friends, their family show up. But this is not necessarily something, unless it's at the truly elite level or like attached to something with some, you know, uh, more grandiose trimmings like the Olympics. Um, and I recognize that Olympic lifts are different than power lifts, but you get the idea. Unless it's attached to something like that, there's no audience for it. Um, I feel like it's very much the same. So that's the challenge he's up against is how do I utilize this massive resource that is hard to monetize versus MMA where it's like these limited resources that while not easy to monetize, certainly you've seen the difference in the commercial upside. So, um, but I think that's the, that's what he's trying to sort of do is say, how do we got all these guys? We must be able to find a way to make use of them. Uh, what do you make of the lineup already announced? I think it's really good. There is a fight they haven't announced yet, not a fight, a match they haven't announced yet. Um, I can't say who it is, but if they make it, I think you'll find it um, intriguing, to put it mildly. It'd be two people who haven't done it yet who uh, would be kind of fun to see. One of them I have a little bit of an issue with, but whatever. Um, and would you ever consider competing as a special guest? No, I will never compete. Never. Ever. I will never compete. All right, I won't say never. Oh, likely never. I will likely never compete. No one wants to see it. I don't care about doing it. And I recognize that people are always like, you need to compete to get better. This is There's a lot of truth to that. It doesn't interest me. I have very limited free time as it is. The, the least interesting thing to me on earth is driving to some BFE area of a neighboring state and sitting in a high school gymnasium waiting to take on some other accountant who is doing this. It does not interest me at all. I will just work with the people in my gym. I will take seminars. I will visit other schools. I might on some point ever compete. I don't know, but I don't care about it. Competing does not interest me in the slightest. And no one wants to see it. Like, 
You think you want to see it? Trust me, you don't want to see it. Heavyweight belt changing hands. In the history of the UFC, no heavyweight has defended the belt more than twice. Do you think Stipe will buck this trend? I have no idea, man. But if you think about who's on the horizon, you've got Cain Velasquez coming back. That's going to be an interesting fight. Overeem is a super tough challenge. Um, who else? JDS might get back and hammer him out. JDS already beat him. Uh, Mark Hunt, I don't think he's going to do too well if he ever gets a chance, but because uh, they already already got hammered out. But um, look, I'll say his chance is as good as anybody else's, right? I thought for sure Velasquez would do it. You know, nope. So this is an, an, a profoundly unpredictable sport with with weird, weird consequences. Let's jump down a little bit to the bottom to get some of the more. Uh, uh, John Nash recently laid out a seemingly plausible legal route for the Mayweather-McGregor bout based on the Muhammad Ali Act. In other words, that McGregor would claim he's a boxer and therefore uh, would be subject to the protections of the Muhammad Ali Act. Yeah, he'd get fought in court, and the UFC would launch an injunction quickly, and I don't think it would happen. I have a very, very hard time believing that Conor McGregor is going to try to do this, and he would win in litigation with the UFC hammering down every dollar they had imaginable to stop that. This sounds nice in theory, in practicality, I don't think it works at all. Weidman's return timeline. Did y'all see his Facebook post? Whew, he's getting neck surgery. And he can say what he wants. I'll be back in six to eight weeks or 12 weeks or whatever it is as a recovery timeline. That neck surgery, if that doesn't scare you, man, I don't know what does. Chris seems optimistic that whether he has the disc fused or removed, he could still return in time for the MSG show. How serious are these operations for an athlete, and do you think he could return from something like that and go straight into a title fight against someone like Luke Rockhold? Here's what I would say. Uh, remember, I was on uh, MMA Uncensored Live with Nate Quarry. Nate Quarry, I don't know to what extent it was a similar, but he did have uh, neck surgery where I think he had a fusion. And it was one of these experimental – no. He had it removed and I believed replaced with an artificial disc in his neck. And he was saying it did wonders for him. In fact, he was able to come back, and I think that was the Gredor fight if I'm not mistaken, let me see the timeline here. Nate. Because uh, he had a terrible, terrible surgery. I'm not, maybe it was the Jason McDonald fight. Maybe he got out of the Demi and Maya fight. I can't quite be sure. Um, it was around that time, but he was telling me he was in abject misery, and actually the UFC paid for his surgery, um, which is something he said he's always been grateful for. I don't want to put words in his mouth, but certainly this seems like a fair representation of the things he had told me. And uh, he actually had done, even at the time when he was on the show, he was doing speaking tours about how revolutionary uh, that surgery was and just what a tremendous benefit it was to his life, because at the time those surgeries were relatively new. He had to fly to a different country to get it. It wasn't any surgeon here who was, I think, at the time capable of doing it. That may be different now, but I think it was in somewhere in Europe. Can't remember. In any event, um, and he said it was it changed his life completely. So the chances of a full recovery for something like this, I think, is fine. But you know, you just begin to inventory all the things that Weidman has done to his body, from breaking fragile and hard to heal bones in his foot to various knee injuries to now neck um, who God knows how awful his shoulders are any kind of like real um, essential joint or um, you know a meeting place between two different parts of the body I bet all of his are wrecked these guys are gonna have unbelievable arthritis 
among a variety of other problems as they age. So, you know, this is why they got to get paid. You know, you, you, you see things like this where the guy has vertigo and he's not willing to pull out of the fight. Now, I'm not saying Chris Weidman has not been properly compensated. I don't know about his particular financial arrangement, but I don't think that that kind of attitude about pushing through injury is particularly unique among this population um, of fighters. And this is why they need to get paid. These guys are going to be, you know, just absolutely, you know, disabled might be a strong word, but, um, you know, and I know he has done professional wrestling, but remember Kurt Angle has done, you know, he was a highly successful amateur wrestler at all levels, uh, including the highest level. I saw him at Bellator, was it 149 backstage? You cannot imagine how hobbled he is. It was shocking. And I can imagine that most of those injuries, or at least those injuries, had a bigger effect as he got older through professional wrestling. I, I, I don't think he can turn his neck. I don't think he can do that. Um, you know, and MMA is, I don't think, is quite as hard on the body given other factors as other things. But, man. Someone says, congratulate. Oh, James Glory. Everybody loves James. Congratulations, Mike Bisping. He has been dreaming of this for years. Hopefully, there's a great rematch. Bisping has been doing movies, as Luke says, but Bisping is always in super shape, so he won't be looking flabby, I bet. I know, but I bet he wish he had gotten under different circumstances. Here's another, another comment. Luke, I was nearly screaming at my screen last week when Ariel and Co. disagreed with you regarding the number of viewers when it comes to prelims on FS1 or pay-per-view fights. This weekend, like always, we had a group of people over to watch the UFC card. Most are very casual fans that only know the biggest names. I asked the ones that I deemed more casual if they even knew there were prelim fights. Of the 10 casual fans, only three knew about the prelims and only one knew they were on FS1. Furthermore, there were four of us watching the prelims and pay-per-view and 18 people watching just the pay-per-view card. When the main card starts, people show up pitching their $5 and watch. And he says he agrees with me. I don't know how you can disagree. <laughs> um, let's see. Uh, any news on USADA and Machida? Nothing yet. Nothing yet. But certainly as, as that develops, we will give you guys some updates. True false. Davis and King Mo combined only making 10K more in disclosed earnings. For the main event that a Northcutt ADK prelim win purse is a bad look for free agency. I think those guys have different ways in which they pocket money throughout their contract. But if that is correct, certainly it would tell you um, not everyone is going to want to seek free agency for the same reasons. Free agency is not going to work for everyone. It's not this. It's not true that everyone can go and all of a sudden this is like some magical um, panacea that will assuage all your fears and alleviate all of your heavy burdens. No, it's only going to work for certain people. Uh, Cyborg won't fight anyone but unpolished cants at catchweights in the UFC. There is. All right, so the new chat had to get put up because I don't know what the hell happened to the first one. So I apologize sincerely. I don't know what happened. I'm so sorry. Um, I'm going to try and make this work. I'm going to update this post here. I'm going to put these together in a playlist so you can watch them together at the same time on YouTube. Sincerest apologies. I'm super, super sorry. Didn't mean for it to go this way. Um, let me tweet this out to all the new. Here we go. That is back up with a new video. Watch it live here on 
MMA fighting. So sorry, guys. I don't know what happened. I sincerely apologize. Let's see if I can get a tweet on the old MMA fighting account. Sorry, y'all. It's embarrassing. What can I do? Let's see here. All right, let's get back to this. I'm so sorry, but we're back up. We're live. All right, no more being sorry. Let's get down to this, shall we? Boom. There we go. Refresh your page. New video is up. And I'm mouth breathing. All right, let's go back up, shall we? All right, let me finish the true-false since I didn't get to it. Time frame of Weidman surgery injury is too conveniently timed for a rescheduled Rockhold bout at UFC MSG. I don't believe it. McGregor, TMT, the money team are patiently waiting on potential Chinese ownership to pave way for the highest-grossing overhyped freak show uncompetitive boxing pay-per-view ever. False. Uh, IOC doping news will have trickle-down effect to UFC. Um... Well, I don't know what IOC news you're talking about. So there's different kinds of ones that have happened. I think you mean the one where they went and retested 2008 Beijing game samples and found 31 of those samples to show up for um, various drugs of abuse, a.k.a. performance or also performance-enhancing drugs. Um, maybe? I don't know. I, I doubt it, but maybe I'll say false, but with a, a wink and a nod. I don't know. Um I'll just say this. I've been reading a lot about water. Have you seen the global uproar against them? Revelations that the Russian, well, Russian sports generally have been skirting water for quite a long time has been rubbing people the wrong way, but their track and field team, uh, so far they're banned from the 2016 Olympics, although they could get reinstated next month. But um, we are allegedly in the era of the best anti-doping ever, and it's having virtually no effect. <laughs> doping is as widespread and pervasive as ever um doping i am certainly not at a point where we should say we should give up on it i do think there is a reasonable and rational case to um as usada says protect the rights of clean athletes but what i don't want to get into is this idea that the more we punish and the more we go after people the more we'll stop this behavior i don't think that really works and i think what's going to wind up happening is a lot of innocent people are going to get caught up along the way um, but if you look around now at the sports that allegedly have the best testing on earth, um, that are subject to the greatest scrutiny, the, the amount of cheating that is going on currently is astronomically high. And yet we are told that anti-doping has never been better. I certainly think there is a, a utility and purpose and value to anti-doping. I think there's a lot of people who really want to do right by the athletes. I also think that there is an undercurrent of zealotry that pushes a lot of these efforts into territory that becomes less about trying to police something that is not all that policeable, but maybe somewhat policeable, uh, into zero tolerance, you know, more than zero tolerance, a, a scary level of uh, punitive action and sweeping changes that are not necessarily based in fairness or science, 
uh, or a lot of other things. You know, Eldonium is banned, and I'm not against that necessarily. I don't really have enough information to say one way or the other that it should be. But is there a significant amount of scientific literature that clearly in, and specifically notes that meldonium is performance enhancing? You know, and also, what does it mean? They actually have really no great definition of what performance enhancing means anyway. You know, creatine is performance enhancing. It's not banned. Um, anyway, just worth considering that I'm not against uh, USADA. I'm not against anti-doping generally. But this idea that we're going to clean up the sport with these better testing methods that are purported to do wonders, um, I generally find that to be total fantasy. I don't buy that at all. Uh, any news on Machida's ban violation uh, with Leoto beat Bisping? Leoto, I think, would have a good chance against Bisping for sure, but I don't have any ups update on uh, him and USADA. Let's go up and look at some of these. Fan demographic Lucas article from MMA Fighting said that UFC and Bellator had similar ratings when it went head-to-head -head this weekend. When I looked at the number of comments on the MMA Fighting homepage, UFC results and Bellator results around 10 p.m. on Saturday night. There were only three comments for Bellator and 600 for the UFC. Can you break down the fan demographic? Yeah, again, Spike TV's got its own audience. And then more than that, the product for UFC is just bigger. I mean, it's one thing to say our prelim ratings on FS1 more or less match the Spike TV ratings. It's quite another to say that's just halfway through our event. In fact, the main event, the main event, the main card, the, the thing everyone's here to see, that's next. Um, so it's a bigger product. It's a bigger to-do it's got more marquee attractions, and again, Spike has their own audience. Um, if Faber were to win, how could he do it? Please tell us how you see that fight going. I don't see how he wins. I have him on the show today, uh, so I'm going to ask him. Um, perhaps he can get to the back, um, but I just feel like Cruz is going to get, it's just so hard to get a hold of. He's so hard to physically trap. But then again, Cruz, you know, not necessarily a guy who is a tremendous threat to close the show early. It was a tremendous threat to knock you out necessarily, especially when you've got the kind of takedown defense and scrambling ability that Faber does. Faber's hard to hurt, you know. Um, so that fight could go five rounds. Anything can happen in five rounds. The longer the fight goes, the more you are susceptible to the chaos that MMA brings. But, um, but I'll ask him. I'll ask him. Who's more prone to injury, Kane or, or Weidman? Um, man. Weidman, I guess. UFC 198 takeaways. I think it was Michael Bond uh, who said that Weidman has pulled out of four title fights in 25 months. The amount of money he has lost, the amount of prestige he has lost, the amount of opportunity he has given away, um, and had to back up off if is just, you know, you say, how could he fight through vertigo? You know, because you read his message, he had vertigo and he wanted to keep fighting. It's because of that, because he already pulled out three times from title fights. I don't think he wants to do it a fourth time. UFC 198 takeaways. What were some of your takeaways from UFC 198? In particular, the following. One, Cyborg's win. Could she make 135? I spoke to her coach. She told me yes, but it would come with some performance costs, maybe substantial performance costs. Is she the clear-cut pound-for-pound female fighter in the world. I think she's a candidate, but you got to beat some bigger names to do that. How does she do versus the likes of Tate, Rousey, and Holm? I like her chances against Tate. Holm, I don't know, because Holm can stick and move. I feel like that might be the kind of person who can give her trouble. And against Rousey, 
honestly, I don't know. I think I would favor Cyborg at this point. Although I didn't used to be that way, but I might be that way now. Maya's win, reaction to his performance, title shot, boring. Um, he can be, I guess, depending on your perspective. I think there's probably a portion of the MMA fan base who finds what he does a little bit less than stellar. Um, this would be so utterly amazing. He's, he's absorbed 12 significant strikes in the last three fights combined. He just loves to take you down, get to your back, and then work from there because it's a really, really... Where's a safe place to be in someone's fight? In your, in your fight, in anyone's fight. Where's a safe place to be? It's on someone's back, particularly if you have expert back control and maintaining that position. It's just someone on your back, and you have to fight this way. It's a terrible way to fight if you're the person whose back has been taken. This is a horrible, horrible place to be. And it's not just a guy on your back. It's the guy on your back. Um, that can really be quite stressful and difficult to deal with. So if you watch the Monday Morning Analyst, and I can't encourage you enough, I felt really good about the last episode. There is, you should see what Maya does. Maya goes for a single leg and he can't get it. So what he winds up doing is he stays on one single leg and he kind of does a trip, but he trips not that way. He trips over himself and he pulls Brown into mount, sort of. It's three-quarter mount. He always keeps one hook under the back left ankle of Brown. He uses that. He has to take a shot to do it, but he goes to deep half, and from deep half, he rotates counterclockwise and then again. So he, what most people would do is they would go clockwise, counterclockwise, and then hit a double off of the knee tap on the ground. And I went back and showed that on the slides. He doesn't do that. He is amazing at this. He goes clockwise, counterclockwise, then trying to double off, goes back to counterclockwise to take Brown over the side of his blocked leg. Um, he's incredible. He's truly, truly incredible. One of the few guys who will give up that kind of position for a takedown. I mean, you think, oh, you got this guy in mount. He pulled you there. Because look, even, I mean, think about this way. Drill, right? It's you versus Demi and Maya. And Demi and Maya is like, you can start in mount. Okay, who's going to be able to really hold him there? Shaka Ray, maybe, you know, somebody like that. That's about it. It's about, he, you, can, you can have everything you want on him, and it's not really going to go all that well for you. He's going to get out. Now, you might be able to beat him up a little bit along the way, but you can just see his mastery of the positions and his ability to, to go between them quickly is just otherworldly. It's just a different, you just don't know guys like that. Uh, heavyweights. Will there ever come a day when a heavyweight will reign in a division like GSP? I think only if they're younger. In Ottawa for the fight night, I will not. Finally, as many have already commented, Ariel and Jeff were 100% wrong about the pay-per-view versus FS1 card numbers. Canada is ashamed. Well, Canada is not ashamed, but okay. By the way, Atletico will destroy Real. It's Atletico. Well. Thing. And that's a, that's a great, great way to end your comments. Hey, you know what thing you like? F it. Oh, okay. Great. Let's see. Someone's asking about Rockwell versus Jacare. Did you know, Luke Thomas, that your name is an anagram of Kuhl Mothos? Uh, Luke, what is your opinion on showing fighters KOs and TKOs, submissions and decision wins when being introduced just like boxing? 
Um, I have to think about it. That's a good question, actually. Like, he has 40 wins, 38 by way of knockout, blah, 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 blah. It'd be interesting if they had by stoppage, you know, because there's so many different ways to win by stoppage. So if someone has these 20 wins, 15, or let's say 10 by way of stoppage, I wouldn't be opposed to it. That's interesting. I'd have to hear it and see how it feels. But that sounds like an interesting idea. Uh, and do you have the biggest arms in MMA journalism? Probably, but that's not saying much. UFC 201 in Atlanta. What are your thoughts on the main event? Is Tyron Woodley deserving of a title shot, or do you think the UFC gave it to him because he whined long enough? This one should not be all that confusing, guys. Should not be all that confusing. Now, just because it's not confusing doesn't mean it's not unappealing with you on that. But here's the truth. Just go down the roster. Here, let's look at the roster again. This is not a hard one to figure out. All right, so you've got – the UFC has, after 200, they've got 201, 202, 203, 204. 205, we'll see what happens with that. They're going to hold Lawler for that. Lawler needs to compete. They had to keep him active. They need a pay-per-view headliner, a welterweight title fight, is something suitable for a pay-per-view headliner. So they've got shows. And because they've got shows, the UFC does, they've got cards they got to fill. they got cards they got to fill. they got main event slots they need to fill. Lawler's part of that uh, guy who's open and available for those slots. Okay? So he's going to be part of that. they just got to big shows. When you ask who's available for him, you could have said Thompson versus Lawler, but they didn't. Now, why didn't they want to? Well, maybe because you know, Roy's at the end of his contract and they want to send a message. Maybe it's because they just believe that the winner of that is the one who's most deserving. Whatever the case, that fight's already made. Plus, you, it's not really that you have these pay-per-view cards you have to fill. You have these fight night cards you have to fill. And I'm sorry, Woodley has already lost to McDonald, if I'm not mistaken, correct? I think that was a boring fight, if I'm not mistaken. Rory McDonald. When was that fight? Yeah, he beat Tyron Woodley just in June of 2014. That was just two years ago. And it wasn't a great fight. So he's already lost. So do you really want to make a McDonald versus Woodley fight? Um for a fight night headliner. I'm not saying you couldn't do that because Rory's the hometown attraction in Ottawa, but it's not the same as a Wonder Boy one, right? So that's the other problem. Now you could say, well, Woodley's not necessarily lighting the world on fire as a title contender um, against Lawler. That's true, but it's a title fight. The title sort of confers some level of prestige there that would otherwise be missing, where a fight night does not. Again, a fight night where a guy already lost and there's no point in making that necessarily. Um, and then you just look at the rest of the guys who are at welterweight. Um, Demi and Maya, I guess you could give him a title shot. I wouldn't be opposed to that, but I don't know that people are necessarily clamoring for that in terms of the excitement. You've got who knows what he wants to take. Hendricks is locked up. Magny's not quite there deserving just yet. Matt Brown just lost. Dunhun Kim, not there. Safety not there. Story, not there. Nelson, not there. Aslam's tied up. Lombard and Alves. A great choices there. Um, it seemed to me it's less of, hey, what's the most exciting fight we can put on, and more of, hey, how do we best use our resources for the different values that we have, either to fill out a card, to fill out two cards, to fill out two cards in a particular market. Um, you know, They want to go back to Canada with a stronger, even if it's a fight night card, they want to have a strong fight night card. I'm not saying that you couldn't have given a Maya, given everything that's going on, but um, I think Woodley is, given all the other circumstances, not the worst choice in the world. Uh, well, we see you in Atlanta. Nope.
Replacement fighter. Ooh, I'll do one more of these. Actually, we'll come back to this. We'll come back to this. Let me go to Twitter machine since I've badly neglected it. You plan on taking a stage dive at Hatebreed? No, I do not. I'm too old and too big for that. I'll kill someone if I stage dove. Any chance Miocic versus Reem headlines a non-pay-per-view show or co-mains a pay-per-view? Yeah, I think so. I don't think it's likely, but I think it's possible, especially as a co-main on a pay-per-view. Speaking of anti-doping, why are all banned substances punished the same? Seems they don't work all the same. I don't know how to answer that. Where exactly on the spectrum of rocked to KTFO seizures is the land of wind and ghosts? Uh, closer to KTFO seizures. True or false? Canelo fights Golovkin in 2017. I'll say true. Uh, Bisping needs to ask Vitor for his doctor's number and get some of that fighting juice because this won't be pretty. All right. Scale of 1 to 10 on these matchups. Dodson versus Lineker. Ooh, that's an 8. Rothwell versus Verdum. 7. Kane versus Hunt. Uh, what's your th thoughts on Wyman's injury history? There was an article in The Atlantic written recently. There is some existing scientific research to suggest that some people just, uh, I think we talked about this before, injure more easily than others. And this, this is burgeoning science. It's hardly definitive. There's still a lot of... Um, there's still a lot of work being done on this about to what extent people's tendons and muscle fibers and ligaments, to what extent some are built sturdier than others at the, I wouldn't say the molecular level, but certainly the cellular level. Um, and whether to what extent um, in kind of challenges and loads. I, I told you, I, the guy who repaired this shoulder, I, have a, I had labrum surgery on this shoulder. The guy who repaired it was the former surgeon for the Washington Redskins. And he was telling me, one of the most surprising things was not surprising exactly, but when he was, he would, he would athletes and he would look at how the ligaments worked and the bones, everything put together. He was just not alarmed. He was just shocked. He, the way he said it was, he goes, they're just not built like you and me. Like everything is sturdier. Everything is thicker. Everything is harder and more connective. The connective tissue is just stronger. Everything is stronger. You know, which makes a lot of sense. It's not, you know, merely the genetics of muscles. Um, it's the genetics of the entire body as well, the cardiovascular system and the endocrine system and everything else working in conjunction. They're just built differently. And I think that that extends as well as, you know, we know some professional athletes like Wyman get injured more than others. But I believe that generally this, I don't think it's accidental. And I think it's really, really tough, unfortunate luck. But I believe these guys are just trying to fight against their biological conditions and, and you can see that is a very, very difficult thing to do. Can you talk about Bisping finally getting his title shot? Well-deserved. Let's look at his resume real quick because I often feel like just re-glancing at it, even if you kind of know really well, is sort of important. So just for a matter of record, he won the Ultimate Fighter 3. Since UFC Team Ortiz versus Team Shamrock finale, this was June of 2006, he beat Josh Haynes. Then he beat Eric Red Schaefer. I love Eric Schaefer. Then he beat Elvis Sinisic, one of the pioneers of Australia. Then he beat Matt Hamill. That was close. That was UFC 75. That was in London, England, his second fight in England in a row for the UFC. Then he lost to Rashad, but it was close. And this is, this is all still at 205. Uh, makes middleweight against Chainsaw Charles McCarthy at UFC 83. He beats him via TKO. 
Then he beat Jalen Day in the first round, and then he beat Chris Lieben. Then he loses to Dan Henderson at UFC 100. Oof. Comes back and beats Dennis Kang. Loses to Vanderlei Silva. So you got Dan Hendo, TRT, Vanderlei Silva, who knows what he was doing. Then it's Dan Miller. Then he beats Then he beats Jorge Rivera. Then he beats Jason Miller off of another season of the Ultimate Fighter. Then he loses to Chael Sonnen. You all know about Chael's history, and that was super controversial. Then he beats Brian Stan. Then he loses to Vitor Belfort, which everyone knows about. Then he beats Alan Belcher. Then he loses to Tim Kennedy, fair and square. Then he loses to Kung Lee. You all know what happened. No, excuse me. He beats Kung Lee. I'm sorry. Then he loses to Luke Rockhold. Then he beats C.B. Dalloway. Then Talos Lighty's and then Anderson Silva. Man, what the guy has been there for. The, I mean, these names, some of these guys aren't even competing in MMA anymore. Um, he did it across two weight classes. The guys he's lost to, Luke Rockhold, Tim Kennedy, those guys seem to be above board. Then you got Vitor Belfort, Chael Sonnen, Vanderlei Silva, Dan Henderson, and then, of course, Rashad Evans, but that was at 205. He's just had some tough luck, man. He's had a really tough luck, and uh, long time coming. You got to be happy for him. Far less than ideal circumstances, but you know, I wonder how he's even going to be able to make weight. Do about that. Uh, let's see. How do you see a potential matchup of Stipe and Overeem playing out? This will be exactly the opposite of the Verdum fight because Verdum is going to excuse me, Overeem is going to want to fight at a distance. Uh, he's going to want to stay away from that short-range boxing of Miocic, the big power punching. And the question is, to what extent can he do that? Stripping Minikov of the title, does he return to Bellator? Does he sit out his contract? It sounded to me like he's on the verge of sitting out his contract if he can continue to fight in fight nights. What do you think of Bellator's release of lightweight champion of Brooks? Was this avoidable? I don't know how avoidable it was, to be honest. You know, look. To me, everyone talks about, well, there's this free agency thing and it's growing and it's changing and makes more shorts. And that's all true, of course. But here's the fact of the matter. What you're seeing is a lot of guys in their 30s who are over the glamour of UFC, who have families and children and they can see the end is not near, but it ain't too far away either. And they wanted to go where they can get the best offer. And even if that means being the biggest fish in a small pond, then that's what that means. That's very different than someone like Brooks who's still in his 20s. Now he's 29, but he's still in a space where um, he hasn't quite tasted the highest level of what he thinks he's capable of doing. And um, that seems to me a very, very understandable thing. Um, but to me, the real question is when someone in their 20s go to the to Bellator, will someone in their 30s, not that this is the same kind of deal, but someone who's already an established star, been in Bellator for a long time, will they then jump ship? But to me, someone in their 30s going down, someone in their 20s going up, earth-shattering change. All right, let's go back to... Uh, replacement fighters on deck. Luke, why does it? Why doesn't the UFC have on deck fighters so they're not scrambling to find a replacement if an injury occurs? Sometimes they do. Why not have the main fight set and have another fighter on deck just in case one fighter gets hurt? Compensate the on deck fighter for his eight to ten week training camp if he's not used. That way he get we get rid of the two weeks notice fights because he would have had a full camp. The problem is they have done this on occasion and it has. Uh, I'm not saying it hasn't worked, but. If you're substituting someone for a replacement, you're typically getting someone who's in that headlining orbiting space. That means you're keeping them occupied and not using them rather than putting them on a card somewhere else and then having them train for that. So there's a cost associated with it. Moreover, it just becomes, I won't say expensive, but um, you're going to get injured. Now you can say someone like Wyman, you might want to do it. Fair enough. But you know, if people are willing to take fights on short notice, do you really need to have that? What you just don't want is the whole thing collapsing. Um, 
week out. That's what you don't want. But um, they've done it in certain circumstances, and in certain circumstances it might make sense. But as a general policy, what you wind up doing is you keep headliners from being booked on other cards because you need them. You need a headliner just in case another headliner falls out. That that becomes burdensome to the promotional needs. All in on this Mayweather talking to John Jones stuff. After putting on your Dana hat, what would be your predictions and actions to the following situations? Number one, assume partial sale, 10% of UFC shares, 300 mil. Will be my actions. Um, I can't answer that because I have different priorities than Dana White. Worst injury I've ever received in jiu-jitsu. I recently started training and broke my hand the second week. Jesus. What did you do? Do you not tap to a wrist lock or something? What's the worst injury you've gotten, if any? Is there a way to decrease chances of injury? Yeah, there is a way, especially if you just start rolling. Don't be a spaz. White belt tries to just rah their way through things. It's not how it works. There's a way to, like, calorie. You are not going to get out of anything raging unless you are just the Incredible Hulk. All right? It's just not going to work. You have to technically get out of things. And if you don't know how to do it, ask questions, work on it, drill, watch videos and then start applying things. But you are not going to get anything raging. Uh, if someone has got you in a bad hold, tap. Do not be a donk. Especially something like a wrist lock where, I mean, I'm not sure what part of your hand you broke, but like, see a lot of white belts will do this bit where they, they hold your lapel, but they don't hold it really tight. Like they don't white knuckle it. And whenever you do that, you can just take their elbow and press it into you, and the wrist will go like that, and then it'll keep going like that, and you can imagine it doesn't feel too awesome. I catch people like that all the time. Uh, I've been caught like that a bunch, actually. That's how I started doing it. So, you know, things like that. Sort of mind your gripping. And, but more than that, I tell this to women is, uh, more often than not. Like, I get letters from women being like, hey, how do I avoid injury? And I'm like, I don't, I don't know. I'm not a 135-pound girl. But my, my wife is. And we're done is just say no to certain roles. So, like, like uh, you know, there's donks out there. And, you're, and they're not, but they might be nice people, but they're donks to roll with. Don't roll with them. Just say no. Like, no, man, I'm good. No, thanks. You don't, you don't owe anybody a role. A role. You don't owe anybody else a role. Don't do that. Um, so stay no to the people who you know are spazzes. And if you are a spaz, stop. You're going to beat anybody spazzing. Um, worst injury. You're going to laugh at this. It's the same one that Dominic Cruz has. and He probably has it much worse. Plantar fasciitis. Fasciitis, yeah. Uh, it's horrible. It is absolutely horrible. And the only way to get rid of it for me was to stop training. I, had, I think I had to stop for like four nine, like six weeks. And it was super hard to get rid of. And it didn't come back. But it, you can't put your foot down. There's massive pain in your feet. You can't use them properly. And you say, oh, that's not a big deal. Joe, last week, and he was talking about what a pain in his ass it is. It is not merely chronic. It is painful. And not merely chronic and painful. It is debilitating. It literally limits your athletic potential. But I've never had an arm snapped or a knee twisted or an ankle hurt like that. What do you make of Vitor's reasons for his loss to Jacare? He stated, Saturday was a day that I went to work but didn't work. And I was focused on the defense and lost my main quality, the attack. That's true. 
Butor fought his 37th fight against Jacare in his amazing 20-year career, and against Jacare, he looked almost helpless at some points. But how much longer can he fight at the top level? I don't think he can fight at the top level. Um, that's what I think. Um, I think those days have absolutely passed. So, um, what you saw him against doing his Jacare was everyone's. I had someone write me being like, "There's no way he's a black belt. He can't get out of mount." And I'm thinking to myself, uh, uh, "I can name a bunch of black belts who can't get out of Jacare's mount. That doesn't tell me anything." Probably Chris Weidman too. You know, Chris Weidman probably those D1 wrestling bases. You ever, you ever go up against a dude who used to wrestle D1? I've done it a couple times. It's like to move a refrigerator, man. It is. They have ridiculous base. They can't be, they cannot be swept unless you're very good. You know, very, very good. And I just think why, you know, I noticed there was one moment where um was not necessarily putting his weight down, but he has, he had his knees pinched and you can see Vitor trying to um, bridge. He couldn't even get his hips off the ground. I don't know if he's had injuries or he just lacks the kind of explosion he needs to still compete anymore. But that bridge was just so nothing. And it wouldn't, that would not surprise me if someone was sitting closer to his hips. So your shoulders are here, your hips are here. If someone's sitting on your hips, it is going to be hard to bridge. In fact, you might have to bridge once to get their weight moving again. And then you might have to bridge a second, third, or even fourth time to really create the space to recapture half guard. Or if they're a donk, you can flip them over or whatever the case. But it's not just the one bridge. But where he wasn't really even putting his weight down. He was putting his weight down a little bit, but not much. And still the bridge was like like hamburger high, man. It was not, it was not a lot going on there. And so to me, that just says like I just you know, he's just older. He's just older. You know, you're not gonna have the same bridging at 40 that you did at 20. At 20, you can explode out of things when you bridge. At 40, it's gonna be a lot harder. So um, you know, I know I'm sure he's training hard. I'm sure he wants to do well and and I, you know. Maybe against lesser opponents he could, but against this level, it's it's just not going to go too well for him. He's 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 losing to guys in ways you would expect someone outside the top fifteen to lose, isn't he? Like decisively, dominantly, not so great. All right, we have to go. So let me just do this. I apologize for the chat difficulties. I'm going to make a playlist and put them together, and I'll put them back in the MMA fighting window and on YouTube. I'm so sorry about it. I didn't mean for it to happen. I don't know how else to fix it. Thank you so much for watching and sticking with me. Give it a thumbs up if you can. Uh, iTunes.com slash promotional malpractice. We're on SoundCloud as well. The Luke Thomas Show, 4 p.m. today. We're going to have uh, Deontay Wilder and Uriah Faber. So that should be fun. Uh, CSXM 93. All right. Until next time. Sorry, guys. And um, 